Welcome to the German Marshall Fund's Out of Order podcast. Today, I'm here with Jacob Kierkegaard, who's a senior fellow at GMF's Brussels office, to talk about something that's been in the news lately, but it's actually a pretty confusing story for someone like me sitting in D.C. and just looking at all the headlines, and that is the vaccine rollout in Europe. So, Jacob, thank you so much for taking some time to get into this with me. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So before we get into what it is that went wrong with this vaccine rollout, just for some context, where is the EU with their vaccine numbers now as of today, Thursday, February 4th? And where do they stand compared to the U.S. and maybe some countries like Israel, who's kind of gotten some some good PR for, for their vaccine rollout? Yeah, I mean, overall, I mean, it, it should be said, one of the problems in the EU is that there's a big difference between different EU members. But overall, the EU has vaccinated just over 3% of their uh, total population. Uh, that is much, much lower than the US is just over 10%. The UK is around 16%. And Israel is almost uh, 40%. Uh, so it is, by any stretch of imagination, a very, very slow rollout which, given the economic stakes at, uh, at play here, are, of course, uh, quickly turning into a you know, hot political potato, so to speak. So before we get into the strategy that kind of got Europe into this bit of a mess with their vaccines, I was reading that their current strategy was, has kind of been informed by experiences early on in the pandemic with their procurement of protective equipment. So masks and all of that towards the beginning of the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about what that strategy was? There were, you know, criticisms for export bans and taking a little bit more of a closed border approach. So how did they handle all of the PPE stuff at the beginning? And then how did that inform the strategy for vaccines? Yeah, one of the problems that happened, uh, you know, last early spring last year was that individual EU members began banning the export of PPE, uh, you know, because they didn't have enough at home, obviously, and there was an emergency going on. Uh, that's against EU uh, rules. So what the EU did was they said, look, we are going to uh, take care of procuring uh, PPE for all the member states together, uh, and, and we're also going to ban uh, internal uh, export restrictions among EU uh, members, are we going to enforce the ban? So, uh, and this was actually pretty successful in many ways. Uh, so what the EU then decided to do uh, was when the emphasis shifted from PPE to vaccines, was to let the EU, or the European Commission, negotiate on behalf of all the 27 member states out of the uh, notion that, you know, if you are negotiating as one block, you can get a better deal. But perhaps equally important, uh, you know, among the smaller member states in the EU, uh, they wanted to be sure that the bigger ones, they, you know, France and Germany, uh, didn't get all the vaccines, basically. So there was also an equality redistributional aspect uh, among the sort of versus the bigger and smaller uh, EU member states. 
so in that sense, this was a very direct lesson learned. Uh, unfortunately, the, you know, it subsequently, they, they, they also drew some wrong lessons um, from their earlier experience because, uh, you know, procuring vaccines in the middle of a pandemic is not, if you like, a normal market. In a normal market, price obviously matters. Uh, uh, and if you, if you negotiate as a big uh, buyer, you should be expected to get a lower price. Well, that's kind of what the EU also wanted. Uh, but that's a very bad idea when you're in the middle of a pandemic and supply is uh, very limited. And there are other countries, such as the UK, such as Israel, such as the United States, that are willing to pay a lot more. Uh, for that vaccine, well, surprise, surprise, they, they tend to get more of it and get it faster. Um, so there was clearly a, a, an issue with emphasis here. Um, but there were other problems that the EU sort of structurally had uh, concerning vaccines uh, that were not present with when they just bought, uh, quote unquote, PPE. And two, two main issues. One uh, was that you? It's very. It's much more expensive to buy or to to pay to ensure that you are among the first recipients of a highly uh, uncertain, you know, uh, ex <clears throat> experimental vaccine, which was the right. case here. Back when these contracts were negotiated in the late spring and the summer last year, um, you know, we didn't know. Uh, First of all, whether a vaccine would be available, uh, when it would be available, and which one it would be. So it was an enormously risky endeavor. And uh, so de facto, what uh, you should have done uh, was you should have basically told all the different pharmaceutical companies, the sort of contract manufacturers, etc., we will pay you to have production facilities ready for either one of these vaccines, um, but that's very expensive to do. Uh, and remember, back in the summer uh, in the EU, uh, there had just been this big, big fight over the uh, EU budget. Uh, and also, at that time, uh, the EU was dealing with a pandemic very well. Uh, there was no sort of focus on the second wave. Uh, a lot of politicians were actually denying that a second wave would materialize in the winter. So the, the big issue was basically, should this vaccine procurement require extra money or should it be done within the existing EU budget, basically on a much smaller budget? Mm -hmm. And it was decided that it should be done within the existing EU budget to basically avoid the politics of the, having the European Commission go back to the member states and say, well, actually, we need kind of need, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 billion euros for this vaccine procurement business. Um, so this certainly set the EU back. This is, the European Commission doesn't have that kind of money, uh, fiscal firepower that a British or an American or an Israeli government has. They always have to ask member states. That takes time. Some are willing to pay. Some among the 27 are not willing to pay. Uh, so this was also uh, something that slowed them down. And then there is this issue about uh, liability insurance. Uh, obviously, this, was a, this is an uncertain, uh, you know, again, ex experimental vaccine. Maybe something goes wrong. 
And if something goes wrong in a vaccine and you have to basically inundate, you know, uh, inject it into all your population, that's an enormous risk. The EU Commission is, was not able or willing to take that fiscal risk because it doesn't have the resources. So it's had to spend a long time negotiating companies about basically to have this, uh, have them keep the liability risk if there was something wrong with the vaccine. That again took longer because the, the companies obviously didn't want to do that unless they were, until they were more certain that their vaccine, you know, would basically work. Uh, no such problem with the British or American government. They took it right away because they can afford to do it. So ultimately, for, for those reasons, the EU ended up, I wouldn't say back in the line, you know, at the end, in the back of the line, that's not true. The EU is, is much further ahead than most other countries in the world, just not compared to the ones they really want to compare themselves to, namely the UK and the US. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very complex. Um, and there's a lot of politics involved as well, as you alluded to. Can you talk about the tussle with the UK? Yeah, basically what happened uh, is that the UK government, uh, very early on in this process, uh, struck a deal with a company called AstraZeneca, which is actually a British-Swedish company. So it has you know, production facilities both in the UK and in the EU about their vaccine. The EU has also purchased a lot of this vaccine. Um, but then what happened was that the UK, because they uh, gave this vaccine an emergency approval, together with other vaccines, they basically approved it in early December um, and started using it. Uh, the EU uh, only, in fact, approved this particular vaccine a couple of weeks ago. So um, what, what happened was that AstraZeneca initially gave, you know, they fulfilled their UK contract, partly because the UK government paid them a lot more. They uh, also signed that contract earlier and the UK you know, government also basically uh, had a need for this vaccine. This included shipping uh, some uh, of this vaccine that were produced on the AstraZeneca facilities in the EU. Uh, the problem was then that the AstraZeneca had also promised, because it also taken money from the EU, that they would deliver 100 million uh, vaccines in the first quarter of 2021. Uh, then uh, AstraZeneca, when they had already begun to deliver the vaccine and use the vaccine in the UK, had to, they run into basically into production problems. They couldn't scale their production fast enough. So right. they had to tell the EU that, look, uh, you know, sorry, but instead of 100 million, you're only going to get 30 million. Uh, needless to say, the EU was uh, very upset about that because they felt that the uh, company had breached their contract, which you can then dispute because the company said, well, it's an uncertain contract and we only had to do what's called best, uh, you know, best efforts uh, because it's an uncertain vaccine. So we, you know, we really do our best efforts. But politically, this obviously wasn't good enough for the EU. Because they, you know, everybody can see that the UK is much further along than the EU, and this is mm -hmm. becoming a political problem. So the Commission, in my opinion, basically panicked uh, uh, and did something really, really stupid. Because they said they basically sort of painted a picture that the 70 million vaccines that the EU were not given, 
or, or that they were not delivered them because of production problems, had somehow been exported from EU manufacturing facilities to the UK. Uh, this wasn't true, but this was the clear, you know, perception uh, that was given initially by the commission. So then they said, well, we want to stop this. So we are going to put in place an export control uh, so that you can no longer export uh, vaccines without a permission. So it wasn't an export ban, but you just have to have a, a permit which is sort of a soft ban, if you like, because obviously at any moment gives an EU member states the right to say no. Uh, the particular problem here was concerning Northern Ireland, because Northern Ireland is, uh, is in this particular issue, a problem that actually uh, there is no physical border checks between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland uh, uh, for, for fairly obvious historical reasons. So, and this is where the commission basically, in my opinion, went completely overboard. Uh, they were so afraid and this imaginary smuggling or, or, or transportation, if you like, of, of vaccines in the EU smuggled or, or transported through uh, Northern Ireland into the UK, that they wanted uh, to do whatever they could to stop that uh, potential uh, loophole. So they... Uh, evoke what's called Article 16, which is basically the safeguard clause in the Northern Ireland border arrangement as part of Brexit, which basically meant that the EU, having just spent, you know, years trying to avoid uh, getting a physical border checks in Northern Ireland, basically said, look, we're going to do it anyway because we want our vaccines. <laughs> uh, and, and this, of course, uh, uh, rightfully uh, created a big political firestorm because uh, this is completely uh, overreacted. There wasn't going to be a lot of vaccines intercepted on this border. And the British government and obviously the uh, Northern Ireland uh, local regional government went ballistic, as they rightfully should. And, you know, fortunately, the commission uh, quickly, if you like, uh, withdrew this proposal and, and um, basically proceeded without... Uh, any changes to the arrangements in Northern Ireland, but you could say the political damage had already been uh, uh, been done. Speaking of political damage, who have been kind of the winners and losers of of this whole saga? Um, someone whose name hasn't come up yet is yeah the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Um, what was her role in all of this and kind of what has, what has been her stance thus far? There's no winners in this, I would say. Uh, certainly Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who uh, is ultimately as commission president responsible and who also uh, in a totally unacceptable and inexplicable way initially tried to evade all responsibility for this. She basically tried to say, oh, I didn't do it. It was the people in the, in the trade department, in the commission that were responsible. She basically evaded, tried to wash her hands from this, uh, uh, even though uh, it was well known that she was very directly hands-on in charge. Uh, so, so her leadership skills and, and uh, have certainly come under a lot of, of legitimate fire. Uh, she has handled this so far uh, very poorly. Um, but of course, if you're looking sort of narrowly at the uh, quote-unquote vaccine race, 
Well, obviously, the UK looks uh, uh, to have done extremely well. Uh, I think there's no doubt about that. Uh, but we should keep in mind that having a lot of vaccinations is not the only parameter that you should sensibly judge uh, right. you know, the pandemic response on. Mm-hmm. Because um, partly perhaps because uh, the UK has had a terrible uh, pandemic uh, uh, situation. They've had, you know, thousands of deaths, far more, I mean, far less per capita in recent months than the EU countries, or at least on average. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you spread it out a little bit, you can't say that the UK has, has had a fine pandemic. They haven't. Uh, they have among the highest mortality rates uh, uh, in all of Europe. They have done very well on this uh, vaccine rollout, no doubt about it, but it's not uh, uh, the only parameter. Obviously, uh, across the EU, uh, nobody has... has uh, you know, there are some countries, Malta, Denmark, have done uh, much better than the EU average in terms of rollouts and have also kept the number of deaths uh, relatively low. Uh, There are other countries, Norway, Finland, that have very low uh, mortality rates still. They didn't actually have much of a second wave. Uh, But at the same time, they also have quite low uh, vaccination rollout rates. So it's sort of a a mixed bag. I, I would say that up until now, this is, there's no clear winners but I would certainly uh, agree with you that Ursula von der Leyen is one of those uh, who has come under the most and, and uh, you know, well-deserved criticism for her role. So you mentioned that, you know, the EU certainly is not in the back of the line, maybe in comparison to kind of other rich countries um, or rich you know, nations. Um, but there has also been some criticism about the rest of the world's population. Um, I know some of your colleagues at the Peterson Institute have written about this. What do you think is the role of the EU, despite it kind of having to manage its own crises, and we can lump the U.S. in here as well, with helping to vac- get the rest of the world vaccinated? Because I think some of your colleagues has made this point that the, the pandemic doesn't adhere to borders. So the EU vaccinates everyone, the US vaccinates everyone. We're still going to have COVID around the globe and it's going to be with us for a long time. So kind of what do you think is the EU's role and where do they go from here on, you know, what's their responsibility on that front? I mean, this is, in my opinion, one of the if you like, more tragic aspects of the last couple of weeks uh, debacle uh, in the EU, because uh, up until a couple of weeks ago, the EU actually had the best policy. Remember the United States, Donald Trump put in place an export ban on vaccines from the United States uh, Mm -hmm. in early December, which for instance mean that it's very difficult for Canada to source uh, vaccines because they can't get them from the US. Uh, The UK, ironically, has also had a de facto export ban on uh, not just vaccines, but any COVID-related medication since the spring of last year. Hmm. Uh, The EU uh, didn't have that. And the EU was actually instrumental and among the biggest supporters of the global, it's called the COVAX initiative which is basically an initiative that aims to do exactly 
uh, uh, what you talked about, namely to pr produce enough vaccines to vaccinate everybody around the world. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, by the EU's uh, uh, sort of, if you like, uh, a moral high ground or whatever you want to call it, uh, they have undercut themselves tremendously with this export control uh, measure uh, put in place in the last couple of weeks. Um, because it's absolutely clear that in, in vaccinating only your own population uh, makes no sense in the medium term because, the, because of the risk of mutations. Uh, we already have a number of different variants of this, mm -hmm. uh, vac uh, sorry, this virus. Uh, and if it turns out that there are corners of the world, particularly, of course, in the developing countries that are not vaccinated, it is almost certain that some mutation, uh, some new variant of the virus will uh, uh, basically turn out to be probably immune to the different vaccines, mm -hmm. in which case the whole world is back to where we started. Yeah. So, so this doesn't make, uh, it makes no sense to, uh, in the long run, ban the export of vaccines, uh, such as is currently the case, as I said, in the United States and ironically the UK. Uh, you know, so, so the EU uh, uh, made a mistake. It's a temporary one. These export controls end at the end of March, but uh, ultimately everybody has to work together to make sure that everybody is vaccinated as soon as possible. Because otherwise, uh, we are definitely not going to be rid of uh, this COVID bug uh, anytime soon. It's going to come back uh, and haunt all of us, uh, uh, you know, at some point in the future again. And so to close out our conversation, thank you for that. Um, let's look in the, sh the near term. You're watching this closely. Kind of what is your, what are you predicting or what's your prognostication of kind of what we're going to see over the coming weeks and months um, in terms of the vaccine rollout in the EU as they course correct from this, a little bit I mean, of this drama? The problem with these vaccines is that supply in the short run is fixed. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it doesn't matter if you try to spend a billion dollars uh, every day. You aren't going to be able to make vaccines in the short run, meaning the next couple of weeks, probably the next uh, month or two at least, uh, the, the supply of vaccines are fixed, which means that there's going to be a lot of frustrated people around uh, Europe because they're going to be seeing that the US and the UK and other countries that have access to more vaccines right now are, uh, you know, pulling further and further ahead, quote unquote. I mean, it's unlikely, in my opinion, that the EU will have fully vaccinated more than, say, six, seven uh, percent of the total population by the end of March. Mm. That's less than the U.S. and the U.K. have now, uh, or at least given the first shot, right? Uh, this, so this, this issue is going to remain uh, uh, an ever more pressing political one uh, in the coming weeks. However, at the same time, uh, I would expect the supply constraints in the EU to lift uh, dramatically in the second quarter, where, where really a lot of supply is going to become available. The EU itself, the Commission says they are looking to uh, take uh, at least 380 million uh, vaccine doses. Um, I think it'll probably be more than that because I think that companies will be scaling up uh, like mad 
uh, and, and a lot of it will succeed because they get better at this. Uh, so in the second quarter, the issue will not be availability of vaccines, but the sort of capabilities of member state governments in the EU to vaccinate uh, millions of people every day. Uh, and, and that's where I'm afraid that uh, the, the really big challenges will quickly emerge. There's no doubt that there are some countries that I think will do very well. I mentioned Malta, Denmark, and a few others. I have no doubt that they will probably succeed in uh, vaccinating their entire population before the summer. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, around the end of June, early July. Uh, I think that's absolutely still possible. Um, and uh, the question, though, will be if all of the EU will succeed in doing that. I'm much more skeptical of that. And I think one of the concerns to me is actually that the level of ambition uh, within EU government is actually much too low. Uh, they're saying the official target for the commission says we need to have vaccinated 70% of the adult population by September. I mean, that, that's not nearly good enough. Uh, uh, this is uh, uh, much too important for that. And it should be possible, in my opinion, to vaccinate, say, 2% of a, a country's population every day. It is full mobilization. Uh, every you know, retired nurse or doctor or whatever, anybody that has training in, in giving people a jab, uh, you, know, you can pay them whatever it takes. Uh, you need three shifts 24-7. Uh, uh, this needs to get done because then you can reopen your economy. And whatever you spend on reopening your economy, uh, oh, sorry, vaccinating everybody very, very rapidly before the summer, you will make up 10 times by being able to re, uh, reopen the economy, which is in some ways the same issue facing the United States. You know, I think, you know, when, when President Biden says 100 million uh, people in the first 100 days, I say, great, but that's nowhere near enough. Mm -hmm. Every American, every EU uh, uh, citizen or resident should be vaccinated by the end of June. That's an ambitious goal. That means we can fully reopen our economies uh, by the summer, uh, have a normal summer uh, uh, vacation season. Who wouldn't want that? And then, uh, you know, we can look, start looking forward again. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon.